last week we, we looked at Isaac's, or we looked at Abraham's role. This week we're looking at Isaac's role in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Uh, a couple things to recap uh, from last week. Uh, this was Abraham's greatest trial, the, the God calling uh, him to... Um, sorry, your, your wife's back there and she's laughing because you walked past her. I was just going to let you know. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I saw the whole thing go down. I couldn't ignore it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, so last week we were looking at Abraham's uh, role in this, this trial that he was facing. And it was, it was indeed his greatest uh, trial as uh, God uh, calls him in the middle of rest. He's resting. He's in, he's in Beersheba. He has a well. He's not having to move the tents. He's planted a tree and he's resting and God calls uh, to him in the middle of this rest uh, to his greatest trial that, that he faced. And so uh, to recap a little bit last week before we dive into this week, what was the fact that we had to know before we engaged the story itself? What was the thing that we absolutely had to know so that the story made sense? That it was a what? A test, yeah. Last week, in order for it to make any sense whatsoever, we had to know that, that this was a test. And in Genesis 22 God, through Moses, lets us know that ahead of time. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. But for Abraham, uh, the story starts by hearing God's voice while he's resting. It says, uh, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And so uh, what are some of the things, well, I said, what are some of the things that Moses said in order to draw us into the drama and the heartache of the story? Some of those things were just that language that your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. So the thing, the tragedy of, of what, was, what he's being called to here was not that just that his son had to die, but that in fact his son would, was being called to die uh, by, his, by his own hand. So what was the purpose of the whole test? Last week we, we said, okay, God's clearly not just mean and cruel and playing a joke and you know, jump out of the bushes with a, with a ram at the end of the story just to be funny. What was the point of, of this very, very difficult trial? His obedience. Yeah, what happened to his faith at the end of it? Was it less or, or was it greater? greater obviously as well as Isaac's and we'll talk about that some tonight uh, and so a couple of the things that we we got last week is it's never God's intention to just wound us or hurt us just for the sake of being wounded and being hurt uh, God's intention is that he would take us through trial and that we may be wounded through that but it's never that's never the end the, the end is that our, our faith would be strengthened that that we would advance in our faith that our faith would be informed and educated um, so, does God put heavy burdens on weak shoulders? No. The, the last week, the thing we looked at is that, you know, God wouldn't take a, a burden that's fit for a guy who's been in, you know, full-time ministry and, and a war, and he's like 60-something years old, and, and, he, and, he's, and he's more resilient. He wouldn't take a burden that's fit for that guy and place it on an 8-year-old's uh, shoulders. Uh, but in fact, uh, the, the burden will always fit the shoulders um, because God does not put heavy burdens on weak shoulders. And what can we expect about our trials as our life of faith progresses and comes closer to its end? What can we expect about the trials and tests? Bigger. Bigger? Any, anything else? Maybe worse? Yeah, that was our encouraging word that we, we ended with last week that don't worry, it, it'll probably get harder. Um, I, I'll read the quote from Spurgeon that we ended with last week. He said, uh, um, he educates our faith. Expect then, beloved, he says beloved, 
uh, your trials to multiply as you proceed towards heaven. Do not think as you grow in grace, the path will become smoother beneath your feet and the heavens serener above your heads. On the contrary, reckon that as God gives you greater skill as a soldier, he will send you upon more arduous enterprises. Let this warn us that we are never to reckon upon rest from tribulation this side of the grave. Expect that perhaps your last battle will be the worst and that the fiercest charge of the foe may be reserved for the end of the day. So this, this, you know, contrary to the live your good Christian life, as much as we want to cling to that, you know, just live your good Christian life and things will get easier and easier. And at the end of it all, you'll die uh, with uh, an abundance of riches and a big family and everyone's going to be healthy and you get to die in your sleep. That's not how it all goes. And so we see that we're called to trials and tests for the purpose of strengthening and, and sharpening uh, our faith for the glory of God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a huge point. And as we study every one of these things, don't I would urge you not even to think about these the 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 things that we take from this, the things that we learn, the points that make sense. Don't even think about it in terms of an individual. You're you're called to be a part of a people, and so and all these things that we're studying. That's a huge point. That it's about community, and that that's how that works together. Um, turn to Matthew eight. I, I want to look at. I said turn to Genesis twenty two. You can keep your finger there. But turn over to Matthew eight. There's something that Jesus said about everything we're studying that it's necessary for us to see uh, so that we can uh, really understand why we're even looking at this and and what's significant. Um, This week we're looking at the role of Isaac, uh, but before we jump into that uh, particularly, I want to look at what Jesus reminds us of in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8 verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And turn over to Luke 13. A couple, couple books over. Luke 13, verse 18. And so in Matthew 8, he has said, he said, at the end for those who are believing that you'll recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he says the opposite, uh, or he says the, the adverse for those who um, are are not children of the promise, who are not believing, who are not accepting Christ. And again in Luke 13, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. You know, this is something that Jesus said many years after these things uh, actually took place, the things we're studying. And so as we continue to study about the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's important for us not to view them as disconnected characters or figures from the distant past. Rather, Jesus, in, in these red letters, Jesus desires for us to know that the children of the promise will actually one day be reunited with these guys in eternity. We'll, we'll actually recline at the table with them. We'll know who they are. 
uh, one day the sight of them will be a blessing and that their presence will indicate the presence of God in eternity. And for those who reject Christ, the sight of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be a curse as they're cast out and ushered into weeping and gnashing of teeth and then eternal separation uh, from blessing and from God. And so as we read through Genesis 22, remember the significance of that. Jesus was the one who said that, who said one day everyone will see these guys. For some, it'll be that it's a blessing and you're going to recline at the table with them. For others, it'll be them seeing these guys as they're cast into eternal separation from God. So turn back to Genesis 22, and we'll read the the text. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. And as I read this, (coughs) last week we looked at Abraham's role, and this week we're looking at Isaac's role. And I want us to climb back into the scenario, and as we read, I want you all to picture, uh, think of Abraham as a father. And as you read this, if you have children... Uh, think, put yourself in this position. Think of him as a father. Think of the emotions that he would have as a father. And think of his role as he's leading his son through uh, this very, very difficult trial. Because tonight we're going to be looking very specifically at, as we look at Isaac's role, we're going to be talking to parents and, and, and their children. And so tonight it's, it's very significant for everybody. So as I read these 14 verses, think about Abraham as a father. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes And saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound up and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Last week, we looked at Abraham's role. In the first part of this week, I want to focus on Isaac's role, and it will help us to further understand what God was calling Abraham to. So as we look at what Isaac was called to in this trial that was actually his father's trial, as we look at what Isaac was called to, it's going to help us to better understand what Abraham was called to and what his role was. It's the same way for parents today, if you're a parent or you plan on being a parent, or you hope to one day be a parent. It's the same way for parents today. If you really understand the role that God has for your children, 
this will help you as a parent, help us as parents to change our natural responses through hard seasons. If we really understand what God's calling our kids to, it's going to change the way that we respond and then our natural responses through hard seasons. So my, my question, I want a little bit of conversation here if we, can, if we can. What is the natural response to a child in the midst of grown-up uh, calamity? So you're at the house, something, something's going on, you know, there's, there's a conflict with a person, maybe it's money problems, whatever it might be. What is the normal response to a child who chimes in with a question about the grown-up issues, the grown-up calamity that's going on? What, what, maybe it's not your response to your kid, maybe it's a response someone else would make to their kid. If we want to do it that way. Be quiet and go away. That's how Ford would respond. Be quiet and go away. Uh, what, what's another response you might hear? This is a grown-up issue, yeah. And there are grown-up issues. I, I want to say that ahead of time. We're going to be kind of hitting some things hard tonight. There are grown-up issues, but a lot of times that's just the response. There's no other, there's no other, uh, no other word to the, to the child other than this is a grown-up issue. What are some other responses? Don't worry about it. You wouldn't understand, yeah. You wouldn't understand. A lot of times it's just sit down and zip it and stay out of trouble while we work through this hard thing, whatever it is. Just don't break anything. Um, yeah, the, the natural response is not, is not always necessarily the, the God-centered, God-offering, God-honoring, God-glorifying response. And so if we can understand what God calls our children to, sometimes we'll, we'll really think more through our response in that situation. And so... In those times of conflict, struggle, and uncertainty, rather than shielding our children from reality, and we're going to talk through this, so I'm sure there's plenty of questions, rather than shielding our children from reality, we can actually rightly comfort them with God's promises. And we're going to talk about the details of this. With the reminder that God will truly always provide. And connect this to Abraham. Abraham's in the middle of the greatest trial he's ever faced in his entire life. A very, very difficult thing. And it has everything to do with, with his son. And here, his son asks a question, and, and rather than just saying, don't worry about it, he, he gives him one of God's promises, the reminder that God will truly provide. Um, Ab- Abraham's response to Isaac at that point really makes all the difference in the outcome of the story. That little bitty, him saying, Father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And rather than Abraham saying, this is between me and God, don't worry, just carry the wood, keep your mouth shut, let's go. Build the altar. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. It seems insignificant at first, like God will provide. Yeah, that's very churchy talk. But the response that Abraham gives to Isaac shows that he's not sloughing him and he's not neglecting what maybe God is calling Isaac to in the middle of this same test and the same trial. And so it's kind of, it's hard because he doesn't share the gory details either. And so we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, So if ignorance is bliss, like we have that phrase, ignorance is bliss, as long as maybe the kids don't know what's going on, no big deal. We think of that in our own lives, if ignorance is bliss. In this situation, when we see Abraham's response, if ignorance is bliss, then a true acceptance of God's promises is beyond bliss. It's better than bliss. It's an altogether much better thing to be informed through the midst of a trial, rather than ignorance, rather than even pretending that things aren't, aren't bad. Like a lot of times we're ignorant or we pretend. And, and it's interesting because we're called, like, we're called to take up our cross. We don't, and a cross is a cross. We're not called to pretend like the cross is something different. Pretend like the cross is a butterfly or a flower. Pretend like it's not so bad. And so rather than being ignorant to something or pretending, 
what I want us to look at here is that Abraham's response to Isaac makes all the difference in the story and the way the whole thing pans out because rather than just shielding him from the reality of what was going on, Abraham shared with him God's promises. He knew what kind of God he was serving. He knew the provider God that, that they were dealing with here. And so he shares that promise with his son. So the thing is, is that Isaac is called to far more than just staying out of trouble. Rather than, you know, Daddy, what about the lamb? Or, or Father, what about the lamb? Uh, rather than, you know, just, just keep it quiet, keep your mouth shut, do what I say, he's called to a lot more than just staying out of trouble. So I want you all to think of an, an adult, a, a grown-up, a parent, and a child living under the same roof. And they're sorting through anything that needs attention. Consider any of the number of trials or tests that your family has been through uh, in the last year or, or two, or you know, anything that's fresh to your memory. Um, this trial, the very trial and the very test that Abraham is called to by God, Isaac's a part of the very trial and the very test. It's, this is a reminder to parents. See, I, Isaac's not separated. He's, as we're going through, I'm wanting to look at Isaac's role, and when I first read through this, I'm thinking, okay, this is between Abraham and God, and Isaac's just kind of a side note here, but really he, he's, he's totally integrated into the story, and, and as, as Abraham's being called to this trial, Isaac's a part of the very trial and the very test. And so this is another reminder to parents that God has included your children in the very test and the very trial that he's called you to. Now this is difficult because, again, our natural instinct is just shield them, tell them nothing's wrong, tell them to keep their mouth shut, whatever. But this, this is, God has included your children in the very trial and test that he has called you to, whatever it might be. So this particular point in Isaac's life uh, has been described as a season where Isaac is mature but not yet independent. This season of life is a season where Isaac is a mature young man, a maturing young man at least. He was, at the youngest, he was 15, 16. At the oldest, some commentators have him as old as 30. just depends on who you're reading. He was a mature man, but he was not an independent man. So, uh, feedback from parents. For, from parents who have had children, who have children, in, uh, who are mature but not yet independent. What are some of the dynamics that y'all face regularly in the house? What are some of the some of the, the joys of having a mature child who's not yet independent and some of the trials of having a mature child who's not yet independent from you. What are some of the dynamics that go on in the house? What are some of the ups and downs y'all face when, as the kids get older? Struggle for control, yeah. What else? It, this kind of talking is necessary. Like, uh, I know you're thinking, well, I'm putting my laundry out there for anyone to see. This is necessary. It's necessary for a bunch of Christian parents who are a part of the same body of believers to be able to hear some of these things because there's a real dy- crazy dynamic that takes place when you have a young man or woman who is mature but not yet independent. And so that struggle for power is huge. What are some other dynamics that you've seen? Even if your kid is, I mean, my daughter's two now. She wasn't talking back to me a year and a half ago, and now she's talking back to me. And, and, and again, the struggle for power is already there at two years old. What are some other dynamics in your own homes or in homes of friends with kids? Huh? Money, allowance? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big deal, especially in a time where money is tighter. And so you, you, there might be some grumbling uh, on the horizon. 
What else? Yeah, know, yeah, that, that's difficult. Knowing where the boundary is, it's like, this is a young man, I want to give him the reins, but I, I'm not ready to hand him the reins. Uh, you know, he might hang himself with them or something. Other dynamics? Oh, yeah. yeah do you let him slug it out? Or, we had four boys in our house, so... Every now, every now and again, we'd have those, but yeah, the the authority issue. When one of them's old enough to babysit, how do you how do you say, okay, obey your brother or sister? Yeah. Other dynamics that are interesting there. Sure. Yeah, you can get on there, be ma- be mature enough to share, you know, thoughts on a blog or whatever, or you know, a communication with someone with a friend, but. Uh, but maybe not independent, so you need some, some guidelines as, as you're living in mom and dad's house and using mom and dad's computer and running up mom and dad's bill. Yeah. Any other dynamics? Students, y'all have any dynamics that y'all think are interesting as y'all get older? That's right. I just called you out in front of everybody. Yeah. You heard it out of his mouth. He wants the privileges, but not the responsibility to go with the privileges. Yeah. I want the car, but I don't have to pay to fix it when I drop the transmission out of it. That kind of thing. Yeah. That was not particular to any person. I, that, that, I've done that. Um, okay. So, uh, so here, here's what we're getting at. This point in Isaac's life is a point where he's mature. He's not yet independent. He's still very dependent. Uh, at this point. However, his father's very old, so that doesn't mean that he doesn't do a lot. He may do a whole lot, but he's mature. He's not independent from his father. He's still in his father's household. His father's still in charge. When his father says, carry the wood, he carries the wood. When his father says, let's go on this trip, he goes on this trip. And so here, um, what we're getting at is rather than, rather than lying to Isaac and giving him a short answer, or even including all the gory details, um, Abraham shares God's promise of provision. He says, he says to this young, mature, yet not, yet not yet independent man, what the Lord will require of us is the very thing that the Lord will provide for us. And so he doesn't, he gives him a promise of God. He gives him what God's going to do. He gives him what God has guaranteed. So rather than saying, don't worry about it and just shielding him from it, he also doesn't go to the other extreme of including all the gory details there may very well be things that they're just not old enough to understand or they don't need to worry about. However, rather than going to the extreme of shielding them and just saying, don't worry about it, it'll be fine, or including all the gory details, what Abraham does is he lands in the middle with a very sober thinking, and he says, son, God will provide. In fact, God's going to provide the very thing that he requires of us. So uh, what is the thing that would keep a parent from responding like this? Again, as we climb in, we're trying to see this from Abraham's point. As we look at Isaac's role, what, what are the kind of things that would have kept Abraham from responding to Isaac like that? Pride? Yeah. Maybe Abraham's freaking out at this point. I mean, really. If, if Abraham is, has lost all sense of God's promises and is just living in, in the flesh only, 
that's definitely something that would keep a parent from sharing a promise with their child. Because if the parent's not thinking of the promise in the midst of the trial and the test, the parent's not going to say, God's going to provide. If the parent's sitting there wigging out over, oh my goodness, am I really going to have to do this? Am I going to have to go through this? They're going to give their, their kid an answer in the middle of a trial that's not a sober-minded approach. So you, the point here is um, you must be sober-minded. If a parent has been unseated and completely distracted by the cares of, of the world, the, the things that are only having to do with the flesh, they're not going to respond to their child in a way that encourages that child to embrace the promises of God. You must be sober-minded. If your mind is intoxicated by the possibility of worldly troubles, you will only intoxicate your child's mind with the same distractions. In the midst of a trial, in the midst of a test, if your mind is intoxicated with all of the what-ifs and the, the is God really going to pull through on this, that's all you're going to feed your child's mind. And the most obvious example I could think about this um, is a real extreme example, the, the crazy parents on the sideline, you know, at the, at the sports games. Um, they're overzealous for the wrong thing. And you can, see, you can see in that how a kid's mind will react if their parents are, are not necessarily sober-minded people. If, I mean, if the, when the parent is out there saying, rip his face off, that's usually the kid who's trying to rip someone's face off on the field. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an imbalanced thing when, when a, a parent has such a wrong view or a, or a misconception of what's actually important that's what they're going to feed their child. And here Abraham gives us a great example of a sober-minded response. Rather than, rather than being so consumed with what was going on just in the flesh, he gives him a, 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 a non-intoxicated response. And so that feeds Isaac's mind with the promise rather than the distraction. Um, uh, John, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs uh, has a great quote. He says, A gracious heart so esteems its union with Christ and the work that God sets it about that it will not willingly suffer anything to come in and choke it or deaden it. Let me read that again. A gracious heart so esteems its union with Christ and the work that God sets it about that it will not willingly suffer anything to come in and to choke it out or to deaden it. This is the answer to the question, who, who am I? What am I called to? If you're a new creation in Christ, you are not a person who is going to be tossed to and fro by every issue that goes on. But rather, through those tests and those trials, there's that steadfastness, that staying power. And so a gracious heart, a heart that has a very high view of who they are in Christ and what God has called them to because of the grace and mercy that He's put into their lives, that there's such a high view of God and a high view of the call that you won't be unseated and, and tossed to and fro and sin into calamity with everything that might want to come in and choke or deaden your faith or, or, or the, the grace and the mercy and the gift that God has, has given you. And so we have these trials, obviously, that, I mean, every single day, everyone in this room faces things that want to come in and choke out your faith or deaden it or make it seem like it's not real or make it seem maybe even like it's not worth it. If you're in a time of crisis, the question you ask is, is this even worth it? Is this a big, fat waste of time? And so uh, a heart that is, that is set right, a, a heart that is focused on the things above and not the things of the earth, says, I so have a high esteem for what God has called me to and the grace and mercy I have in Christ that I'm not going to be totally unseated by what's going on. Uh, oftentimes, and this is, this is what this leads to. I was thinking about this today. Sharing your faith. When you share your faith with someone, what are you actually sharing? You're sharing 
your faith. You're sharing the faith that God has blessed you with. These are the tests. These are the trials. And this is how good God is. If Abraham is sharing his faith, he's not going to go straight to the Roman road. If Abraham, obviously, if Abraham is sharing his faith, Abraham's going to say, I went to Egypt and I was a moron and God is good. I went to the land of the Philistines and I was a moron, but, but God is good. And then one day in the wilderness, I was there and I was doing what God called me to with Isaac and Again, God is good and God provides. That's him sharing his faith. And so what this leads us to, that we're not unseated by the hard things, is this. Oftentimes, the very things that we see as distractions and inconveniences keeping us from the work of ministry are actually the work of ministry itself. They're actually the work of ministry. When I came here, uh, we, I didn't go full-time for like a year. And my biggest complaint was, gosh, all these financial obligations and stupid mistakes I had made, all these financial obligations are just, they're, they're inconveniences and they're, they're keeping me from the work of ministry. And this is so hard and I've got to drive to Dallas three times a week and I've got to wire houses and be an addict. And I, it's keeping me from the work of ministry. All the while, I did not realize that was the actual work of ministry. That was the building up of faith. That was the proof. God provides. God is so good. God is so gracious and so full of mercy, and he provides. And so that thing that I personally saw as a big distraction and a big inconvenience that was really keeping me from the work of ministry is something that was the actual work of ministry itself. Because on the other side of it, when I, if I'm, the work of ministry is I'm being equipped, I'm being built up so that I can share faith with others. The faith that I'm going to share with them includes that. A, season, a hard season that I went through saying, God provides. God is so good. Like there's no reason that we made it through that other than God is very good. And so that thing I saw as a distraction is the actual work of ministry itself. It's not taking lemons and turning them into lemonade. It's not taking all these bad things God gave me in my life and trying to make up something good. It's actually the work of ministry. It's actually a time where you're taken through a trial and a test so that your faith is strengthened, so that as you share faith with others and you share the gospel with others, the work of ministry has been taking place the whole time. It's not just an inconvenience. It's not just a distraction. So that means when we go into a trial, we go into a test, we may be saying, rather than whining and vexing and complaining, we say, okay, this is the work of ministry. This is what God's called me to. Clearly, this is, I'm going to get through this in a way, no matter how hard it is, no matter what it is, in such a way that I have Christ, and so on the other side of this, my faith will be strengthened, and the work of ministry will be good, and it will be complete. So we must be sober-minded, knowing that no matter what the circumstance, we're never rendered hopeless, we're never rendered helpless, we're never without God. We're called to persevere because of our hope. And in the midst of our persevering, we should always be mindful that our children have also been called to glorify God in that same situation. They have a role as well. We should give them the opportunity to embrace his promises rather than shield them from the reality that God has created, however painful it might be. If, if we're sober-minded in that approach when we're sent through tests and trials, if we're sober-minded, then we'll give our, our children the opportunity to respond to God's promises, to either embrace them or reject them. But it, the only way that they can do either of those is if we are sober-minded enough in the midst of it to recall the promise that God has given us and then share it with our child rather than just kind of sloughing it. As, as adult stuff, because, again, Isaac was in the very middle of the hardest trial that Abraham was called to. The second part of this whole thing is that Isaac's response to his father is indicative of how we should respond to our Heavenly Father when we find ourselves bound by circumstances and unsure of the future. 
The response that we see from Isaac to his dad here is an example that's been set for us as we respond to our Heavenly Father in whatever's going on in our lives. What we don't hear from Isaac is, it's too early. Remember, Abraham woke up early. We didn't hear Isaac saying, it's too early. Give me like two more hours, then we'll go. Or Moriah, that's too far. We don't hear that either. There's no whining. Now, as I, as I say this, I want to remind you, I'm going to address the students who are in here. But I, as I'm addressing the students who are in here, I'm also addressing the parents because remember, understanding your, your little Isaac's role will help you in, in achieving your role in a way that glorifies God. So I'm going to talk to students for a minute, particularly y'all. And, uh, and as I do that, know that as a parent, you, uh, you're, you're gaining understanding about what they're called to and maybe what they're going to be challenged with so that you can respond in a way that glorifies God. The first obvious response here is obedience to his father because he understood, Isaac understood that Abraham had been called by God to something in particular. Isaac understood God came, God's voice came to my dad and said, Dad, do this. And whatever this is, I understand that it's God who called my dad to this. My dad's not just some crazy maverick who's running off to Moriah for three days for no good reason at the top of a mountain. This is specific. And, and Isaac understood it was particular and it was a call from God. We know that in everything God calls us to, it's worship. Whether you're going to work, whether you're in a trial in, in marriage, whether there's something with a friendship, whether there's financial things, whatever God calls us to, it's supposed to be worship. Our worship is a response to God revealing himself to us. He reveals himself to us in trials and tests and everything. And so everything we're in the middle of, we're supposed to be worshiping God. Worship's not reserved just for song singing for 20 minutes on a Sunday. Everything's supposed to be worship. Our response is always to glorify and honor God in obedience. So students, God may call your parents to a test or a trial or a season where you are directly affected. God may call your parents to a test or a trial or season where you're directly affected. And you need to know that your parents' response is supposed to be worship of God, praising Him, glorifying Him, honoring Him. So you can either you know, help that or hinder that in your response, students. So I, I was coming up with some, I was thinking about like, some practical implications here, like what, what, what's a trial that um, students could be called to because their parents are called to it and they find themselves in the middle of it even though maybe it's really their parents' thing. And so I was thinking maybe a parent is called to change jobs and move to another town. Maybe a parent would be called to change jobs and move to another town. So the student either takes their, their, their lead from Isaac here and submits or they can whine and vex and complain. Maybe as a family you need to just tighten spending so you don't get to go out as much. Maybe you don't get a car when you turn 16. Or you share a car. Even worse. Maybe, maybe you need to share a bedroom with a sibling because it's not at all ideal or logical to buy a house big enough so everybody can have their own big bedroom. Maybe you don't get a cell phone. Or maybe the cell phone you have does not have unlimited use uh, at all times. Like a free... Uh, open bill there. Uh, maybe, uh, as you get older, maybe you need to go to a state school uh, so that you can get the tuition break to help your family out. Maybe you need to get a part-time job to help cover your gas bill and your entertainment expenses. There's all kinds of different scenarios here, but every one of these scenarios provides an opportunity for you to whine and complain, or the better response would be obedience, being mindful of the fact that God has called your parents to a season of trial and it would be nice if you would 
It would be obedient. It would be good. It would be glorifying to God if you would do everything in your power to encourage rather than distract your parent from the opportunity that they have to worship God obediently through this trial. Again, connect it to Isaac. Isaac could have responded very differently. And we talked last week. Isaac was, his dad was over 100 years old. To knock his dad down and run away would not be very difficult for a young man who's at least 15. Um, no matter how old you get, you can't take your dad. That, that is one thing. Um, I, I do believe that, that uh, Abraham would have caught up to him. But um, nonetheless, side, side note. Uh, side note, sorry. Um, <laughs> that was brutal. Um, y- you, you have an opportunity to either respond in a way where you're going to be a punk and you're going to make an already hard trial worse for your parents, or you can respond obediently, taking your lead from Isaac here. Next in verse 7, now, this is key for everybody, going back to everybody. That was particularly to students. Next in verse 7, Isaac asks a question about provision. See, they're going along, and he doesn't understand how everything is going to come together. Uh, he, and so he asks a question of his dad. Dad, I see the fire. I, I see uh, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He doesn't understand how it's going to come together. Some have said that this question is a sign of resistance and doubt, but Truly, questions like these are often allowed, appropriate, and even encouraged and can be a sign of true faithfulness. So let me explain that. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs, read The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is a phenomenal book. That's what I'm quoting here. Please read it. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs observes in Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says this, Though not with a tumultuous clamor and shrieking out in a confused passion, yet in a quiet, still, submissive way, he may unbosom his heart to God. So that means that if you have a question in the midst of a trial, it's not a sign necessarily of weakness or doubt or disobedience. You are allowed to let your request be made known to God. Isaac is three days into this journey with his father, and he's unsure of how the cards will fall. He's unsure of how the plan, uh, how uh, this will all pan out the right way. He's unsure of how God will rightly be honored and glorified. Yet he does not brim over with anxiety and faithfulness. He doesn't get halfway up the mountain and, God, uh, Dad, uh, where's the, Dad, are you losing your mind? We're kind of missing an important ingredient in this really important time of worship. He's not brimming over with anxiety and, and, and fretfulness. Likewise, when our Heavenly Father has us in the middle of a trial, we may go to him with an orderly question. That's okay. It's not always a keep your mouth shut and, and just do what he has you in. Sometimes you may need to shut your mouth because you've been running it too much and, and complaining to God. But here, if our Heavenly Father has us in the middle of a trial, we may go to him with an orderly question. But our aim as we do that, if we're concerned, if we have doubt, if we're not sure how it's going to work out, if we're not sure if we have what it takes to get through that thing, our aim must never be to make our point. Our aim uh, must never be to argue with God, to sit and say, God, this isn't going to work out. You've heard those prayers. You may have said those prayers at some point in your life where you're telling God how it's going to be. God. That's similar to hiding from, a, from him behind a tree. And so this is, uh, you're, you're, you're making your complaint, you're, making your, 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 you're bringing your question to him, but it needs to be done in an orderly way. And the point is to submit and yield to his will for you in that situation. The point when you bring an orderly question to God is to yield to his will for you in that situation, not make your point. Philippians 4, go ahead and turn to that. It's pretty important. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. As we're talking about asking a question in the middle of a hard time, it's okay. And, and I, I read some, some guys who really thought that Isaac 
this was a little sign of his resistance. I just, I don't see it that way in large part because of what Philippians 4 says. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Anxiety is a form of pride, even though it's, that's hard to reckon with. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, so those are all part of it, prayer and letting him know what you need with, while giving him thanks, let your requests be made known to God. It's okay for you to let your requests be made known to God. And it says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. It's okay for you to let your request be made known to God. Now, do it like Jesus did in the garden. If it's possible for this cup to pass, please let it pass, but your will be done. So if we let our request be made known to God, follow it up in the same way. Let your request be made known to God. Do it with uh, prayer, uh, letting Him know what your need is, coupled with thanksgiving. Uh, and, And the point of it is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ. That tells me that the peace we have from God is far more important than understanding exactly why everything's happening the way it is. Understanding is not the most important thing. The peace of God in the midst of calamity or trial or testing is, and it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. This leads us to this next scene. Uh, We find Isaac himself bound, laying on an altar, with his father standing over him with a knife. Okay? Here we find Isaac in the next scene in Genesis 22. He's bound, he's on the altar, he's tied up, and his dad is standing over him with a knife. You can imagine what could have been going through his head had his dad just said, son, be quiet, this is a grown-up issue. It made all the difference. What Abraham said to Isaac made all the difference. Isaac's heart does not appear to be troubled. While there may have been trouble, that was not the main thing. Had the main thing been trouble, he would have run. Isaac's heart does not appear to be troubled, and his mind does not appear to be confused. Confused to the point where confusion is the main thing. There may be signs of trouble. There may be signs of confusion. But the main thing here is trust and submission. And so his heart does not uh, seem troubled. His mind is not confused. They rather have been guarded by the promise. Just like it says in Philippians that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ, here the promise that Isaac hears from his father Abraham guards his heart and his mind in this trial. They've been guarded by the promise that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. As he lays there, this is the promise that strengthens his trust. This promise that his dad shared with him in the midst of the test and the trial is the promise that, that makes him submissive. So what's the, the question is, how would this scenario have played out different if Abraham would have just tried to... Uh, shield his son from the reality that God had them in. It would have played out very, very different. This would have played out so different. If, if, if Abraham would have just said, son, just do what I say and carry the wood. Son, lay there. Keep your mouth shut. If Abraham would never have shared the promise that, son, God will provide. God's always good to provide. God's always provided for this family, and God will not cease to provide for this family. And whatever he has for us is the best for this family, and it's the best for his glory. So it makes all the difference. It would have played out very different if Abraham would have not shared the promise with him. So connect that to the opportunity that you have in the midst of a trial. 
in the midst of a trial that God may lead your family through, in the midst of a test that God may lead your family through, you always have an opportunity to share a promise with your child. And that promise always leads to peace. It may not lead to the perfect scenario, what would be best in your mind, but it leads to peace which exceeds understanding, which guards your hearts and your minds in Christ. So you always have that opportunity in the midst of a test and a trial. Rather than just sloughing it, it, it takes more time. It's, it's like anything with, with a kid. It just takes more time. If you're going to correct them and you want them to understand, rather than just smacking them, it takes more time to sit and say, look, I'm going to spank you, but this is why you're getting a spanking. You've disobeyed and you're being corrected and, and all these things. Um, but it, it takes more time. And it's the, same, it's the same way here. It takes time to make the most of that opportunity to share a promise with your child that will lead to peace and leads to the, the embracing of the promise. I just want you all to picture Isaac and his role laying there embracing the promise. His dad's over him with a knife, and Isaac is sitting there. And what's going through his mind is God will provide. I don't know how. I'm the one who's tied up with my dad got a knife over me. However, God will provide. I'm convinced that must have been going through Isaac's head over and over and over again. And the reason it was there was because Abraham took the time to give his son a promise from God in the midst of this trial and this test. So because of the promise, Isaac is submissive uh, to his father. Isaac doesn't muster it. It's not something that he finds inside of him. We don't see Isaac going, okay, I'm going to reach down deep inside of me and get what I need to not run away. Isaac can't muster what he needs here. He needs the promise of God that will guard his heart and his mind. He needs, the prom- he needs to hear the promise from his father's lips to keep him from this. So it's not Isaac mustering what he needs to get through this. It's the promise that, that delivers him through this and gives him what he needs to be submissive and obedient. Uh, another quote from Spurgeon about the character of Isaac. In his spirit, there was an abundance of humility, obedience, resignation, and gentleness. Indeed, of everything which can make up the beauty of holiness. And such a character was quite sure to have won the admiration of his father. Our response to our Heavenly Father when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial or as a student who's in the midst of a trial that maybe your parents are going through, um, we have an opportunity to respond like this where God is honored and God is pleased. And again, remember, God does not lay heavy burdens on weak shoulders. If you find yourself in the midst of anything, whatever it might be, you may sure be thinking, There's no way this was the burden that was supposed to be put on my shoulders because I can't handle this. That's not how God works. Whatever he has you in the middle of is what he will deliver you from. It's what he will keep every promise. There's not a single, no matter how horrible the situation, there's not a single promise that God will break in the midst of it, no matter how how tragic it may seem. Households uh, are made up of children and parents who walk together through many trials and tests And both the children and the parent, just like Abraham and Isaac, have a role to play. Students, you must understand that when God calls your parents to a trial or a test, you have been given the opportunity to either whine and complain or submit and trust. You are actually ministering to your parents when you obey and submit, willing to sacrifice whatever the trial calls for. And when you think about it, a lot of the sacrifices you're called to are pretty minimal in the scheme of the real big picture. Like the list that I shared, those are pretty minimal sacrifices. They're real. Call it what it is. I don't want to say it's not what it is, but they're pretty minimal in, this, in the scheme of the big picture. Be mindful that your parents, be mindful that your parents are created to glorify God in every circumstance, and your response can either hinder or help them in that process. So you actually have a very real role to play 
even when your parent, it seems like, oh, that's just my parents' thing, you have an opportunity to respond in a way that's helpful and not a hindrance. Parents, when God calls you to a trial or test, do not neglect the opportunity to give your children the chance to embrace the same promises that God has given to you. You don't have to shield your child from reality, but you also don't have to include all the gory details that may not be necessary for them to know. But be sober-minded enough in your response to your children to the trial or the test that you don't neglect what God has called your children to. In the midst of your trial, your children are called as image bearers who are directly affected by your trial. If both parent and child can be sober-minded, the result will be a family coming together, trusting God through the trial and praising God for his faithfulness to always keep his promises. That's going to be the result here. If we understand that whatever, looking at it as a family thing, and even what Ben said, even as a church thing, as we're called to different trials, there's a togetherness about that, that here, if we can be sober-minded enough to embrace the promises for parents, to share the promise with the child, for the child, the student, to, to be sober-minded enough to embrace that promise and be willing to sit there like, like Isaac did, willing to endure whatever he was called to, the result will be praising God for his faithfulness to always uh, keep his promises. Are there any questions or thoughts or concerns or